You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 13th of August 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. At the minute, there's a disagreement. Suddenly, no, everybody won't be so friendly. This is the nature of the president that we have right now. He's quite mercurial. Joining me on our news panel for a longer look at the day's big stories will be Pippa Malmgren, former economic policy advisor to US President George W. Bush, and Raffaello Pantucci, director of international security studies at the Royal United Services Institute. We take a look at John Bolton's visit to the UK, Russia's eternal reluctance to come entirely clean about nuclear accidents, and Auckland's enthusiasm for monitoring its citizens. CCTV has been ubiquitous in London for many years. The British society seems happy with it. Instead, if you turn to Germany, it's completely unacceptable and you can't have any sort of CCTV at all unless it's very tightly controlled and restricted. Plus the global news headlines and the latest editorial opinion from our brand new programme, The Monocle Minute. Many say the bungled response to the incident, which saw firefighters initially focus on fires elsewhere and ineffective coordination between rescue services, helped unseat former Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras in July. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Raffaello Pantucci and Pippa Malmgren. Uh, we will start here in the UK, which has been hosting not only its ongoing national nervous breakdown, but US National Security Advisor John Bolton. Bolton has been saying all the things that the headbanger wing of Brexitism would have wanted him to, pledging America's support for a no-deal Brexit and vouchsafing that a trade deal between the US and the UK could be done quickly. It is not altogether improbable, however, that Bolton might have wanted something in return specifically support for his hardline on Iran. Um, first of all, Pippa, how reliable an interlocutor is Bolton? Is he somebody that the president takes seriously? Well, look, they've had their conflicts. They have not always seen eye to eye, even in this formal position. Uh, but the reality is that Bolton is expressing a view that the United States has expressed for some time. This is not new news that they want to do a trade deal with the UK post-Brexit, that they're willing to be incredibly flexible about that. And that is in large part because they view the relationship with Britain as being a national security-driven relationship. So their view is, you know, trade whatever, we'll just sign whatever deal with you guys because we want to tighten the national security relationship. And that's why Bolton is talking about trade as opposed to the trade officials like, let's say, Bob Lighthizer. So this is really important because from a British perspective, it looks like just a trade issue. But from an American perspective, it's a national security issue. And it has long roots. Even back in the Bush administration, there was a view that uh, the Europeans on a national security level uh, are not uh, reliable partners to the United States, but Britain is. And so for many, many years, this view has been persistent. It's just bubbling up again in this context. Um, Raffaello, how reassured, I mean, the, the British government, especially its enthusiastic Brexit wing, is claiming to be massively reassured and excited by what Mr. Bolton has had to say. But really, how reassured should anybody be? 
I mean, I don't know that there's anything that we particularly heard that wasn't was very new, to be honest with you. I thought it was just a sort of clear articulation from a senior American official um, pretty much saying what the Brexiteers wanted to hear. And, you know, I think that, of course, goes down very well. And, you know, there's an interest at the moment here in London to make sure that, you know, the positive message about global Britain will be fine after Brexit is being pumped out repeatedly. So, you know, within that context, John Bolton sort of knows the audience he's come to speak to, uh, says things which basically concord with what they want, delivers pretty much the same messages that we've heard from most American delegations over the past couple of years, which is, you know, we don't like what you might be doing with Huawei, trade deals, sure, we can do that whenever, let's talk about it, it doesn't matter, and security is really important. Um, I think there was also some brief undercurrents about Iran, where I think there is a bit of a disagreement, frankly, between the UK and um, and the United States, and it's interesting in a way that Iran didn't come up more, I think, in these discussions, which I think reflects the fact that the general view on both sides was, we want this visit to go well. And we want positive optics to come out of it. And so that's what was delivered. I mean, Pippa, Iran must have come up, though, surely. It, it has been a pet obsession of John Bolton's for years and years and years. He is the most hawkish of the Iran hawks. And obviously, if you are thinking about this from his point of view, it's hard not to believe that he would not see an opportunity here to lean on the UK to pick a side because the UK, while it is participating in the US-led patrols of the Strait of Hormuz, is also still, in theory at least, attempting to prop up the Iran deal. Yeah, but again, that's not new either. I mean, even if Bolton were to say to press the British, that hasn't made any difference for years now. So saying it yet again, I'm not sure would have you know pushed Britain over the line in some way. Um, and I think the British are trying to be very careful about balancing the various competing interests. The other thing is geopolitics is becoming incredibly complex, and there are many pressing issues on many fronts. And probably they spent more time talking about the recent nuclear incident with Russia and what to do about the new nuclear arms race that's underway. You know, it's a question of priorities. You only have literally so much time in any given meeting. And now prioritizing which are the national security issues issues that require the greatest attention and care is not so obvious. And so maybe just Iran didn't take priority at this particular point. Uh, we will be talking more about Russia and its its nuclear sites shortly. But, uh, Raphael, another thing I was struck by in terms of the, the quotes attributed to John Bolton while he's been here um, is talking about how he and Trump were, you know, leavers before there was really a leave movement, that he's, he's terribly enthusiastic about the idea of the United Kingdom, uh, you know, leaving the European Union, whereas, of course, the attitude of the previous American administration was always obviously that while this is a matter for the British people, it would be a source of considerable regret to the United States. What is... Bolt. I mean, it's it's always hard with Trump to know how much of a coherent ideological, um, you know, I, don't know, I think it's fairly coherent. coherent. Is I want to be king of the world, and I'm quite happy doing <laughs> tweeting at everybody. I mean, it feels pretty obvious. You know. but, but, but John Bolton clearly does have some uh, objection or animus towards mm. the idea of the European Union. Why would he think it was any kind of detriment to the United States national security? I think ideologically, he seems to be someone who is of a view that, you know, world government, be it the United Nations, the EU or any other major multilateral is a negative thing because it constrains American power or constrains America's allies power in the case of the European Union. And I think that's a worldview that he's very clearly articulated. I mean, wasn't he famously when he was uh, before he was appointed to be ambassador in New, I think in Bush administration, if I'm not correct. Um, he uh, famously said, you know, you could destroy 10 floors off the UN building and basically no one would miss a heartbeat. 
beat. The point being that he really holds these institutions in very, very low regard. And I think the EU kind of fits in with that perspective. And his fundamental view is, you know, the United States is the world's preeminent power and protecting that power is the ultimate goal of any American administration. So unfettered power and unfettered, you know, levers of power is where he's sort of driving towards. So within that context, he would look at something like the European Union and say, well, what does the European Union do? It potentially ties the United Kingdom into a set of decision-making structures over which it doesn't necessarily have control and which might therefore, you know, prevent the United Kingdom from being the U.S.'s sort of, you know, unconditional ally around the world. Now, I think that's a misreading of the situation, quite frankly. The way the EU was always constructed was very carefully so that, you know, member states can continue to control national security, which, of course, is a huge priority for everyone. But I think from his view, that is very much how we'd interpret this institution. And so from his perspective, you know, and that's not a new worldview. And so he would quite comfortably say, I've always been against these sort of world government things. And now it's all coming to bear. And I very much want to support it going forward. But I think it's also a little bit coming to a head because of the EU uh, announcing that they do want to create a more unified military defense structure. And that has immediate implications for uh, the U.S. and how it operates internationally. Again, this is a long, long standing issue, but because the EU keeps talking about it as being an ever increasing priority, it is becoming a priority in Washington, too. And there's a, a wide array of opinion about what, what to do about that or what the implications are about that. Bolton only represents one piece of that puzzle. But I have to say that's a very active debate in Washington. Um, Pippa, this is the first uh, high-level personal contact between the United States and the United Kingdom since the change of prime minister here. The first contact between President Trump and Prime Minister Boris Johnson is due to occur at the G7 summit in Mm -hmm. France later this month. Um, How important to the relationship in the near future between the US and UK, is it going to be whether or not Donald Trump decides he actually likes Boris Johnson? You know, this is such an interesting question. You know, the way the president interacts is always dependent on his personal sense of the person and the situation. I mean, Boris Johnson is white and male, so he has those things going for him. <laughs> but they've already met at some point, haven't they, and liked each oh, other? I'm sure they've, right? I'm sure I'm they've, sure they've met said, more than yeah. a few times. But, but there is, of course, video footage of Boris Johnson as, I think, when he was still mayor of London, describing Boris, describing Donald Trump as being, and I think I quote accurately, out of his mind. Yeah, yeah, which, you know, wouldn't be a totally surprising thing. Um, <laughs> And, you know, look, at the minute there's a disagreement, suddenly there won't be, there, no, everybody won't be so friendly. This mm. is the nature of the president that we have right now. He's quite mercurial. You've learned British diplo speak. Um, I'll put the same thought to you, though, Raffaello. How, how hard is it going to be for Boris Johnson, who is a man... I think it's fair to say, unlike Trump in many important respects, how hard is it going to be for him to keep a straight face while he tries to forge some sort of personal connection? I actually think it'll be fairly easy. I mean, from all reports, he's a fairly charming person to meet in person, and I'm sure he will turn on this charm very actively when he meets the president. He's telegraphed quite clearly and loudly that, you know, he he sees this as a very important relationship. I think him, Trump probably sees him on the same side of the scale when we're thinking about these big problems of, you know, of, uh, of you know, sort of... Uh, 
populist uh, revolutions around the world. And so I think he, they probably see each other as peers. And, you know, I think they'll both be happy and willing to sort of park to one side a uh, previous commentary. And, you know, I think that um, Donald Trump, I'm sorry, Boris Johnson will, will continue to champion that. You know, on top of that, you've also got this sort of constant need that you have in the kind of British system to champion the special relationship and its sort of sacredness mm-hmm. uh, to both of us. And so I think, you know, those two things added together, a president who wants to find an ally and a friend in London, um, who wants to, who sees him as part of his same sort of ideological vision of the world, alongside a sort of civil service who are desperate to make sure that the sacred, you know, special relationship is maintained as the preeminent thing that both the UK and US are uh, fixated on, means that I struggle to see that meeting coming off badly. You know, I think the funny thing is that I'm sure afterwards we will get some ridiculously intemperate comic coming out from Prime Minister Johnson because he seems completely <laughs> unable of sort of keeping his mouth shut to these things. I mean, even after his meeting with the Queen, right, he reported straight into Downing Street and then started reporting what the Queen had said and other people had said to me, you're not meant to report that. So, <laughs> Pippa Malmgren and Raffaello Pantucci there will be back in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Daniel Bates with some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. Hong Kong's airport suspended check-ins on Tuesday as pro-democracy demonstrations once again disrupted flights in and out of the city-state. Hundreds of flights have been cancelled in the past two days. During a heated press conference, Chief Executive Carrie Lam ignored questions about whether she has the autonomy to withdraw the controversial extradition bill while defending the police crackdown on demonstrators. The police have had a very difficult time in the last two months to enforce the law and to ensure law and order in Hong Kong. As everyone will will observe, they are under extremely difficult circumstances. Lam also said the increasingly violent protests risk pushing Hong Kong into an abyss. Meantime, China's People's Armed Police have assembled in the neighboring city of Shenzhen for exercises. This, as Beijing has said, Hong Kong protests are beginning to show, quote, sprouts of terrorism. The deputy head of Iran's Port Authority has said the organization has been in contact with the British government regarding an oil tanker seized back in July. The ship was suspected of delivering oil to Syria in breach of sanctions and impounded in Gibraltar. A court there is set to decide what happens to the tanker later this week. Argentina's currency and stocks are continuing to take a battering following President Maurizio Macri's surprise defeat in primary elections. Macri was beaten by his center-left rival Alberto Fernandez at the weekend, and the news has sent shockwaves through Argentina's economy. The results suggest people in Argentina have had enough of Macri's austerity measures and the country's deep recession and soaring inflation. A new drugs trial is raising hopes that the deadly Ebola disease can be cured. Scientists have said two experimental therapies have increased the survival rate to 90 percent for newly infected patients. Health officials say they plan to offer the drugs to all patients in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where there is a major outbreak of the virus. And today's Monocle Minute reports that the world's highest paid boy band, BTS, will be taking an extended break from music. The South Korean troupe, who were the first K-pop artists to top the charts in the U.S. and the U.K., say they want to, quote, enjoy their daily lives as normal 20-something young men. We wish them good luck on a well-deserved break. Now, back to you, Andrew. 
Thank you, Daniel. This is the Monocle House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Raffaello Pantucci and Pippa Malmgren. Let's look now at Russia, where not for the first time the world is trying to figure out precisely what variety of mishap has befallen one of its nuclear facilities. Last Thursday, an explosion occurred in Sarov, a closed city in Nizhny Novgorod Oblast, more or less entirely dedicated to nuclear research. Russian explanations have been characteristically reluctant and or opaque, but it is now known that yesterday saw the future funerals of five scientists killed in the blast and that a spike in radiation was briefly recorded in Savorodovinsk, a city 25 miles away. A local port has been closed to shipping for a month. Uh, Pippa, this does not sound good, does it? Let's also keep in mind that we've seen the militarization of the Arctic underway for some years now. Mm. The Russians have been building new military bases and quite sophisticated facilities up there. And traditionally, um, this part of the world is where they did an enormous amount of nuclear testing during the Cold War. So what they've really been doing is uh, reinstating old Cold War processes. Um, and in fact, people in the nuclear space would say that much of what happened over the last few decades is the Americans stopped investing so much in the nuclear infrastructure and just maintained it, where the Russians actually continued to make investments and now are trying new things. Anyway, here's the bottom line. What we have now is record level defense spending between the two countries. And frankly, globally, almost every nation has increased their spending on defense. And some of that is definitely going into nuclear. And meanwhile, all of the traditional conventions for constraining the use of or the research into nuclear weapons have all been either put aside or undermined or now there's disagreement about what do they actually mean. So everyone feels that their hands are loosed and they are free to pursue this. And let's also remember this is taking place against the backdrop of extraordinary innovations in technology in a world where we can now talk about hypersonic weapons with incredible speeds. And as I understand it, but I defer to Raffaello on this, uh, what was what seems to have occurred is a test with a nuclear-powered missile. And this is something we have not seen before. And I, I, to my mind, I'm like, how do you have a nuclear-powered missile that doesn't produce uh, an uncontrolled nuclear outcome? I mean, maybe you can explain that. Raffaello, not a nuclear expert. Almost literally my next question right there. But leaving aside the actual the details of the technology, strategically, how significant is it if what, Russia is developing and or what has blown up here is a nuclear-powered cruise missile as opposed to a nuclear-armed one? I mean, I, I, from my understanding of the technology, it's very difficult to yeah. imagine it's actually workable or doable, and I think Pip has touched on some of the reasons why. Um, I think uh, my understanding is that the United States looked at this, concluded this was impossible and a zany idea and sort of parked it to one side. But, you know, we've seen the Russians have been pushing their missile systems and programs into ever more creative directions, and they do like to make these sorts of statements around big things. They talked about hypersonic missiles before, uh, which we are seeing lots of people moving towards, and now clearly they're trying to think about, you know, creating cruise missiles that are nuclear powered rather than just, you know, containing nuclear explosions. So we're clearly seeing them pushing the edge of technology. But in many ways, I think what's interesting to me about this story is how it seems so repetitive of a fairly persistent problem that we see with Russia, which is Russia's 
infrastructure is really not quite up to the scratch that it sometimes portrays itself as. And mm. we quite regularly see these sorts of large-scale mistakes. And if you look kind of, you know, there have been regular large-scale military incidents, which have huge consequences beyond the kind of immediate environment that are operating, which the Russians always try to hide and then eventually come out and we get this sort of bizarre story. But actually, there's a bigger story of, nuke, of infrastructure in general around Russia really starting to fall apart and how Russia is really becoming a country which is, you know, there's lots of creaking and tearing at the seams that we don't totally see and that the government does seem a bit incapable of actually managing. And that does speak to a bigger sort of decline within Russia, which I think often gets clouded, frankly, by the other side of these stories like this, which is, look at the new nuclear devices that they're developing. Pippa, is there ever any prospect, do you think, of Russia getting beyond uh, the way it manages a crisis like this, which in many respects, and granted, we don't yet know how bad this is in the same way that we don't really understand what happened with the AS-31 submarine, which caught fire in the Barents Sea last month. Mm. But... is it a reach to compare this to their attempts to manage Chernobyl uh, in 1986, in which it took days, weeks, months, in fact, for the truth to emerge, which I guess was something you could do in such a closed information environment as the Soviet Union. But you can't really pull that off anymore, can you? Uh, no, you can't. But I mean, I, I, as an individual, have no way of knowing what the scale of this thing mm-hmm. is. What What's interesting is the way, as you say, in an internet world, um, how much information can be gleaned by non-governmental parties. And well, a lot pe- people of... People were posting videos of the explosion yeah, 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 on their yeah. phones. Yeah. Totally. So, um, and, and again, whatever the nature of this particular incident, it's, as Raffaello says, it's the frequency. We're going to keep seeing these mm-hmm. incidents as they're pushing the boundaries. And in the, in the backdrop of this, what continues to happen is almost every scenario that NATO or the West looks at with regard to Russia very quickly shifts into nuclear confrontation because the Russians don't feel confident about their strategic security Mm -hmm. capabilities on any other front. So they'll always revert to nuclear. And so the kind of world, for example, my father was um, part of the team that managed the Cuban Missile Crisis. And you see, in those days, you you had 10 days, you know, to save the world. <laughs> these days, the speed of these uh, events and weapons is much different. And one wonders, what is the state of the dialogue between the U.S. and Russia? I mean, the conspiracy theories are that it's constant. And then another view is that there's not much. So that's a problem in the background, too. Okay. well, finally, on our news panel to Auckland, New Zealand, a city not widely thought of as an anarchic crime plagued Hobbesian hellscape, but one whose municipal authorities are nevertheless determined to spend millions on dramatically expanding the reach of its CCTV cameras to at least 6,000 by 2024 to be equipped with facial recognition software and accessible by police, civil defence forces and transport authorities. Um, Raffaello, Auckland is obviously not alone in doing this as a city. We, we are broadcasting from one of the most photographed and mm. cctv cities on earth. And I think it's probably fair to say that the prospect of New Zealand collapsing into tyrannical, paranoid dictatorship is a remote one. Um, but does this nevertheless seem weird? I mean, it's... It, it's difficult for me because I, I'm not sure that it does feel that weird in a way because I feel like 
for one thing, as you point out quite correctly, here in London, CCTV has been a persistent feature of the kind of lives that we lead for a very long time. And, you know, we've had these debates in Europe periodically. And what's fascinating to me within the European context is the degree to which different countries within Europe have different thresholds for, you know, what level society seems willing to accept in terms of, you know, surveillance. So CCTV has been ubiquitous in London for many years. The British society seems happy with it. Instead, if you turn to Germany, it's completely unacceptable and you can't have any sort of CCTV at all unless it's very tightly controlled and restricted. Whereas in contrast, if you look at ID cards here in the United Kingdom, there's uproar when we decide to try to install them. Whereas in Germany, they've sort of had them for a long time. And so it's interesting to me to see that all these different countries are doing that. Now, that's sort of been a persistent conversation. Now, what's interesting is the fact that technology has now gotten to the point where actually those cameras, which basically used to be just things staring down at us, which, you know, were useful for authorities subsequent to something taking place because mm. they could go back and see what had actually happened. Whereas now we're seeing that their computers can actually stay on top of them. And I think that's making us rethink a bit of this whole set of questions. And I think it's very complicated and difficult because I think then it comes down to how much you really trust the institutions that are controlling these tools. And that really varies wildly depending on which country you live in. And actually depends actually on the relationship between the society and, and its state. So, you know, I can imagine how Aucklanders might worry a little bit about this, but I can also think that Aucklanders probably feel a certain degree of confidence in their governance structures and Jacinda Ardern's, you know, what she's doing in her country. And so they'll probably say okay to that. Whereas, you know, if you turn to a country like... Um, I don't know, uh, Egypt, you might have a very different sense of that relationship between the state and its people. So I think it's but th this whole dilemma about AI and artificial intelligence being linked to these cameras and the degree to which that's actually empowering uh, this sort of the use of this technology, I think is raising some interesting questions, which I'm not sure we've all really totally thought about. Uh, Pippa, is this an argument that people are going to end up by definition having too late? Because it's very hard to imagine the government or governor or politician who would actually order cameras to be taken down because you're then just be asking to be blamed for every crime that happens afterwards. Well, and let's make a distinction. I mean, I'm in the technology robotics space myself with a, with a drone company. There's the camera and then there's the AI. The AI is the software that you run over the video. It's not the camera that does it. When they say AI cameras, this isn't really right. It's a camera and then you take the data and you deploy it with artificial intelligence. And then the real question is, what are you doing with that? So one of the things that gets done is identifying shoplifters. Mm. And so when sh when you walk into a shop, if you've been a shoplifter, the shop is informed that you now have a shoplifter in your shop. Um, it's about identifying not who you are, but what you are. And so this raises all kinds of issues. Plus, there, as you say, the, the question of identity, the, this is not just about identifying you know, it's me, Peppa Malmgren. It's about identifying what is my emotional reaction to things. Because facial recognition yeah. is all about identifying the microfacial movements that indicate when are you happy, when are you sad, when are you um, upset. And these things can be sold. Mm -hmm. And this is very valuable on the open market to understand how do you, and specifically you, respond emotionally to things. Because if I buy that from you, I know how to sell to you. Mm -hmm. And then that is a whole different set of ethical issues involved. But I think that's a really fascinating one because I think that in many ways I could see how an organized society can probably figure out a way of discussing the issues around, you know, our law enforcement using this kind of technology. You know, we have police and we have lawyers and we have judges and they have a whole structure around them. The real dilemma is when companies start to do it. Yeah. 
because they, of course, have a very different set of reasons why they're doing all this stuff. And so I think that is really where the interesting debate is. And I don't think we're having it. And that's the Facebook uh, yeah, lawsuit exactly. that's underway right now. I just tweeted about and cited Monocle. So it's on, <laughs> it's on Twitter. Pippa Malmgren and Raffaello Pantucci, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, we head to Greece to hear about the country's response to summer wildfires and the possible ramifications. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. While you may already be a subscriber to our essential daily e-newsletter covering affairs, business, culture and more, you can now listen to the Monocle Minute. A new audio version of the Monocle Minute is ready daily at 6am London time. And for a preview of today's edition, we're looking at the political toll of wildfires in Greece. A disaster is unfolding in Greece tonight. The death toll from wildfires there has hit 74. It's likely to go Wildfires. Higher. Rescue workers found the bodies of 26 people huddled together. The number Just of dead keeps rising in Greece, where a pair of raging wildfires are ravaging resort towns near Athens. It's wildfire season again in the Northern Hemisphere, with emergency services dispatched to battle blazes in Spain's Gran Canaria and across three U.S. states in the last few days alone. Last weekend also saw several fires across Greece, including in an Athens suburb and on Elafonisos Island. No injuries have been reported, but authorities said the country remains on high alert today due to high temperatures and windy conditions. It is a test for Kyriakos Mitsotakis' new government. Memories are still fresh of last summer's tragic wildfires around the coastal town of Mati, the second deadliest globally this century, which killed 103 people and hospitalized 140 more. Many say the bungled response to the incident, which saw firefighters initially focus on fires elsewhere and ineffective coordination between rescue services, helped unseat former Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras in July. 20 people have been charged, including the regional governor, a mayor and fire brigade officials, but are yet to face trial. As affected citizens continue to chase justice, all eyes will be on Mitsotakis' new democracy party to see if they can handle the heat better than Syriza. That's the latest opinion from the Monocle Minute from our Venetia Rainey, as read by Yolene Goffan. You can access the Monocle Minute from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache and researched by Yolene Goffan and Louis Allen. Our studio managers were Steph Chongu and David Stevens. Coming up at 1900, a brand new edition of On Design. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. 